When I was 14 years old, Shaquille O'Neal made his presence known in the NBA for the first time. And um, nobody had, any, had ever seen anybody like this guy. Seven feet one, 300 pounds, he was a force. And so Reebok tried to capture this with a commercial in which there were four NBA legends and they were guarding this like invisible club known as the NBA's greatest big men. And this was uh, Bill Walton and Julius Irving and Bill Russell and Kareem. And so this uh, young, relatively unknown, mysterious figure walks up to this invisible temple court and he knocks on the door. And the legends, the old guard say, what's the password? And this young Shaq says, don't fake the funk on a nasty dunk. <laughs> that was the password. And sure enough, they open up and he walks into this invisible temple of the basketball gods and uh, they say, show us. And he grabs the ball, he takes it behind his head, elevates above the rim so high and brings it down with such fierce intensity that he shatters the backboard. And the glass falls everywhere and he's left standing there with just the rim in his hand. And these four old guards sort of look at each other like, whoa, that's different. We've never seen anything like that before. See, when Shaq came on the scene, man, he broke all the NBA paradigms. He began to revolutionize the way we thought about post-play in the NBA. And he redefined what the dunk looked like. And it all started with this idea of, if you want access, you better not bring anything weak up in here because it's gonna get tossed out quick. Can't fake the funk on a nasty dunk. And the theologians in the room are thinking, is there no bridge too far for this guy <laughs> with his illustrations? And I, probably not, I don't know. But the passage, the passage that we're about to read today, Jesus enters the temple and he is this relatively obscure and unknown person. And yet what he says and does in this short passage is really about to break all the religious paradigms that ancient Jewish way of thinking held. And he's about to show Israel that he is far superior than any of their old leaders, Moses and David and all the prophets, that he is entering the temple to redefine the meaning of the temple altogether and to revolutionize what worship looks like. And the message is this, if you wanna be a part of the new community, if you wanna experience true communion and intimacy with God, then weak worship won't work. You can't fake the funk. And so I can't remember which translation that was in exactly, but we're gonna read from the ESV and that will be on the screen. So let's look at John chapter two, verses 13 through 23. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and the oxen, he poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. 
Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And we say the grass withers, the flower fades, but not your word, O Lord, it stands forever. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning that you would bring your spirit to bear and that you would help us again to see the glory of the Lord, that we would see the glory of God and that it would reign in our hearts that we might be the temple of God as you've intended us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna look at what's happening in this passage real quick. So there were three major festivals each year in Israel, in Jerusalem. And so people from all over the Roman Empire would make a pilgrimage, especially during the Passover feast. And so as they were coming in, uh, you had to have two things. Number one, you had to pay a temple tax to get in the door, and that was about a half shekel. The other thing that you had to do is you had to make sure that the money that you used to pay that temple tax did not have any idolatrous images on it. And so you would bring the, your coin, your foreign currency, and you would change it out so that you would have a shekel, this actual shekel. And then the other thing you needed to bring is that you also had to have an animal sacrifice. And so if you were traveling far away, you couldn't enter the temple without some sort of animal sacrifice. And uh, it was really inconvenient, obviously, if you were coming from Athens or Rome or Corinth to bring a, a lamb or a sheep all the way with you. And so it was convenient, for the sake of convenience, you would show up and buy your animal there, right at the temple. Now, previously, in Solomon's temple, all of this exchanging took place at the Mount of Olives, okay? And so the Mount of Olives was about three-quarters of a mile to the entrance of the temple. But with Herod's temple, this new renovated temple, he's added a ton of square footage, and the money changers and the animals and all of this commerce is brought into the temple itself for convenience, and the result was something that felt like an outdoor shopping mall, like a flea market. One historian estimates that there were probably between 10 to 12,000 people in the temple when Jesus walks in on this particular day. And that on the Day of Atonement, 250,000 animals were probably being sacrificed between the hours of 3 and 6 p.m. So you just think about that scene. It's busy, it's loud, it's distracting. And Jesus walks in, he takes all of this in, and something begins to stir in his heart. There's this ferocity, this holy anger and intensity. And the ESV says that he comes and he makes a whip of cords. But the Greek here for cords is actually the word rushes. What is a rush? Well, rush is like these dried strip of weeds. There are these hay weeds that they would put in the animal stalls. And so Jesus comes on the scene, he walks over to one of these stalls, he starts pulling out these sheaves of rushes and he starts to put together and weave them into a whip. Now, if you had a leather whip with a Roman scourge on the end of it, 
it would be easy. Anybody could drive out people in the temple or make the animals move. But it takes a sheer force of personality to scatter the temple court with a handful of weeds. The legend is that Wyatt Earp, he didn't even have to carry a gun. He just walked in and the bad guys surrendered. This was his force, his presence, right? And Jesus comes in, clears out the animals. He turns over the tables one by one. The money is scattered all over the temple floor. And within, a, and within minutes, thousands of people have cleared out. The, ent- the entire temple court, the animals are gone and it's just Jesus with this whip made out of grass. Are you kidding me? John is deliberately putting this story. I want you guys to see this. He's deliberately putting this story right next to the story that we read last week, the wedding of Cana. It's Jesus's first miracle. But what John is trying to tell us in this story is that this moment is somewhat of a miracle as well, that Jesus's presence, he comes with this power and this authority like a refiner's fire to cleanse his temple. This is a big deal. Now, on the surface, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. We're like, how do these go together? They look so different. The wedding at Cana, the miracle, and now this uh, supposed miracle in the temple, what's happening here? They look like complete opposites. At the wedding, what is Jesus? He is the greatest party maker in history. He shows up, he makes 180 gallons of top quality wine, keeps the party going. But in the temple, Jesus is the biggest party pooper ever. He shuts the whole thing down. At the wedding, Jesus acts privately, quietly, behind the scenes. But at the temple, he's public and demonstrative. At the wedding, Jesus is filling up. He's bringing joy and salvation. In the temple, it looks like he's taking away, bringing judgment and condemnation. At the wedding, everybody knows they're in trouble. The wine's about to run out. The party is about to end. They cry out for help. We need you. At the temple, they're missing the party altogether. They have no clue of the danger that they're in, and they're silent, judging him. And so while the two miracles look really different on the outside, ultimately, what John is doing is he's using these contrasting pictures to tell us the same thing. He's pointing to the same thing, and that is this, that you and I, We're made for one thing, and it is the glory of God. You are made for the glory of God. That's ultimate joy. And that our worship and our celebrations and the joy always run out when we center our hearts and our minds on the wrong things and in the wrong way. When we settle for weak worship, we miss the party altogether. And so here's what I want us to think about this morning. Jesus comes to disrupt and to condemn weak worship because he wants to give you the real thing. He wants to come so that you can know and enjoy and celebrate the abundant life that Jesus alone has to offer, which is the glory of God, and to make room in your life and in this church so that others can come in and see and know and enjoy that glory as well. What a challenge. And so because Jesus loves you, because Jesus loves us, he's going to challenge your worship. He's going to come and challenge the patterns of your life. And he might disrupt the routines that would keep us 
from real worship that lead to weak worship. And he's coming to tell us he's not pleased with weak worship. He wants to redefine the temple to revolutionize our vision for worship and to say that weak worship, if you want the real thing, it won't work anymore. So how does this work? How does this happen? How does he show us this in the text? Well, number one, I think we see that weak worship makes us blind to the glory of God. The glory of God. In our new members class this weekend, Andrew did just a great job of saying, what's our vision here at the church? Hey, our vision at the very beginning is always this. Our vision is for the glory of God, that we would organize ourselves around this idea that we want the manifestations of his perfections to be on full display. That's what his glory is. The manifestation of his perfections made visible and on display, namely his holiness, because his holiness is what makes his characteristics so much greater than anything we've come to know anywhere else. And so when you, think about this, when you meet someone that has a really sharp mind, they can remember anything, they seem very witty, we're kind of fascinated, we're awestruck. But Romans 11.33 says, no, 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 God has a holy wisdom, a depth of insight that you can't touch. We've probably all experienced love from another person that's just amazing. We're floored by it. We feel so known and loved and listened to and cared for. And those interactions can leave us, we can feel taken aback. We're like, that was so amazing. But God's love is holy. It's set apart. And so his glory is the manifestation of all the perfections of God's character and being. And in ancient Israel, they went to the temple to see that. That's where they were meant to see the glory of God. Listen to 2 Chronicles sorry, 7. 2 Chronicles 7. This is when Solomon completes the first temple. We read that fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And that's what God's people were meant to experience and to be filled with themselves, his glory. And so when we uh, turn... When the people of God then turn his temple into a shopping mall and say, you know, we'd rather buy things. We'd rather for our lives to be convenient. We'd rather um, to make our lives kind of all about commerce and how we can get this done more quickly and efficiently. Jesus is saying the decisions that you make in your life around convenience and consumerism will distract and blind you from the glory of God. And so this is a big challenge for us today. This is a really big challenge for us today because in the ancient world, their life was much slower. And you think about it, if you're walking up for this feast, this celebration, from a distance, you're walking at about three miles per hour. And from a long way off, you can look up and see that temple on the holy hill. And you begin to think about and meditate and ponder what is about to happen in there? Why am I going there? Who is in there? And what are my expectations? Hey, in our world, you drive past a billboard at 65 miles per hour, you have no chance to ponder what's on that billboard, right? Life is hard. It's better together. What is that? Two for one in McDonald's, what just happened, right? We're flying, that's our lives. You know, when 
they lived in the ancient world. As they were making this journey together, they would sing these songs of ascent from the Psalms. It was like heart preparation. The group was worshiping together on their way to worship, on their way to the temple. And these songs were meant to prepare their hearts. But in our world today, we're distracted. We stay up late on Saturdays, unwinding with our entertainment preferences. And then on Sunday morning, we just rush in. Oh, I'm so glad I just made it. No expectations. I'm here. Do you anticipate seeing the glory of God when you come here on Sundays? Do you anticipate or make room in your heart and schedule to prepare for it? Even on Saturday night, what would that look like? Jesus might want to turn over some tables in our lives. And then, think about this, once these people were inside the temple, they would have this sacrificial animal. And there was meant to be quiet space before the sacrifice to look at the animal and say, oh my goodness, the reason I'm in here is because of what's about to happen to this animal. The only reason is because my sin has been placed on this animal. And because of this sacrifice, I'm to think about the forgiveness and the mercy and the cleansing that's born out of God's perfect love and righteousness for me. And so Jesus is angry. He's saying, by turning this place into a flea market for the sake of convenience, you're losing a sense of the glory of God. And that's what you were made for. Do you see it? In John 1, do you remember the first words out of Jesus' mouth to James and John? We, we read this. Andrew did a great job. And they're following him around. They're curious. And Jesus turns to them and he asks a probing question. It's a simple question. It's the first words out of his mouth. He says, what do you want? What do you want? And in some ways, the whole of, God's, of John's gospel is meant to keep asking us that question. What do you want? D.A. Carson, in his introduction to this book called The Basic for Believers out of Philippians, he says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of God, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted to God. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I would find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like to buy about $3 worth of God, please. Well, this is an indictment on our culture who likes to move fast, who wants faster, more efficient, and more quick. Someone at the discovery class and I were sort of lamenting how the whole world seems to be organizing itself in this way. And he was talking about his job and uh, how certain regulations were changing the way that he was interacting with his people. And I said, even this morning at Kroger, 
I went in and there was actually nobody working any registers. All you had was the self-checkout lines. We made those for efficiency. And instead, all we're doing is grumbling at each other because they don't work. You know, anytime, listen, anytime that you and I want expediency, efficiency, convenience, you are sacrificing intimacy in relationship. We're doing it. Intimacy with God, intimacy with one another. And this is the warning. Do you want the glory of God? If so, we're gonna have to prioritize things differently. What in your life and schedule where Jesus, where like Jesus in the temple, what in your life and schedule might you have to say, get out so that I can see the glory of God. Number two, weak worship won't move you towards mission. Instead, it will make you ambivalent. Now, we're gonna see that in verse 14. In the temple courts, he found men selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and others sitting around at tables exchanging money. Now, when John says that this is happening in the temple, he doesn't mean it's happening in the holy place. He means it's happening in the court of the Gentiles. Okay, and so the way that this temple was organized, the more profane or the more common, the less sacred was on the outer parts. And the more you went to the interior, that was the more sacred, the more holy spaces. And so if you were not of Jewish heritage, but you believed in God and you wanted to make sacrifice, you could go in, but there was a wall. And you see that wall is pointed out by that red line. And in front of that, in the blue line is what's called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where all of this action is taking place. That's where all these animals are being sold and all this commerce is taking place. And so the Hebrew men and women, what was nice and convenient for them is they could go past that wall and enter into a quieter, more reverent space. And all the hullabaloo would be behind them and they would be able to make their sacrifice there and it'd be quieter and cleaner. And what Jesus is saying What he's so angry about is that the Jews were perfectly willing to let all those distractions take place out there with the non-Jewish Gentile God seekers. And this was in fact helpful for them. It was helpful for the Jewish people because they didn't have to do their purchasing of the animals at Mount Olive anymore and then walk them that three quarters of a mile up to the temple courts. They could start in, the, in the, the court of the Gentiles and move into this quieter, cleaner place for their own personal worship. And so what we see is there's this ambivalence and this disregard that angers Jesus. Because listen to Isaiah 56. Here's God's vision all along for the temple. He says, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord and to worship him These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted for my house and they will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And so this verse is building on that old Abraham promise that I will bless you, you and your people, and you will become a blessing for the nations. And the blessing that he had was for them to have his joy in his house of prayer, intimacy with God. 
Why am I blessing you, Israel? So that you might extend the party, so that you might widen the circle and invite more people in to experience what you are experiencing, the fullness and the glory in God's people who are only concerned with their needs and their personal conveniences and their overly regulated standards towards others, but not towards themselves, have totally lost sight of the heart of God for expanding his kingdom. And instead, they've created this opportunity to profit on the disadvantages of other people. And so, the worship of God, wherever it is, that says, I have the blessing in favor of God, and I love that, but I am too busy and too distracted and cannot be inconvenienced with helping somebody else come in is weak worship. And Jesus is coming in with this miraculous power and authority to disrupt and to convict weak worship and to say that just like at the wedding of Cana, he wants to extend the party to make sure that everyone has enough of the joy. I wanna bring in the outsider. I wanna bring in the foreigner, the homeless, the sick, the lonely, that they may come up and gather on my holy mountain and I can give them joy in my house of prayer. And so the question for us this morning, the question for us this morning is, are we willing to make room in our lives so that we can widen the circle and others can join in? Are you, are we as a church willing to have God sift us into our deep desires to bring the heat of his holiness to bear on self-orientation, comfortable lifestyles, consumerism, these conveniences that subtly keep the circle closed and they sort of demand, hey, everybody else should make room, but not me. I don't have the time. It's not in my schedule. Somebody else, you can do it. Every time that you and I have to make room, something has to open up. Something has to be surrendered in terms of personal comfort or finances or my social life or my schedule, or my home. But this is the party for Jesus. Do you see it? This is the party for Jesus. This is what brings him joy. This is his feasting, is widening the circle, making room. This is why in just a couple of chapters, what we're gonna see is the disciples come back and Jesus has met with the Samaritan woman. And they, they think he's hungry. They brought him food. They say, well, won't you eat? You haven't in so long. And he says, nope, I've been feasting. I'm full. I'm good. I'm satisfied. What? It's because I invited people to share my joy. And that's my feast. It's the feast of welcome versus the, the wall of convenience. Seeing God's glory makes us disciples who make room. Are you willing to make room? in your life, this is the worship that Jesus longs to have, longs for us to have. All right, last. Weak worship does not recognize the grace of God. We'll finish with this and then we'll go to the table. Weak worship doesn't recognize the grace of God. In verse 18 through 21, here's what we read. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jews are saying, have you, have you really come into our temple and you're gonna criticize us and condemn our worship? Who do you think you are? Like, what are your credentials? 
On what authority? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You're gonna raise it up in three days and then the scene ends. That's it. Now, in a minute, we're gonna get this conclusion idea that he was speaking about the temple of his body, but he, we don't actually have that in the dialogue. He shuts it down. He's standing right in front of them. They don't recognize who he is, what he's all about, what he's come to bring. It's only later that we see John's commentary in verse 21. And so I wanna show you that there's two little ways that I think this conclusion shows us that true worship is always aware of and empowered by the grace of God. Here's the two ways. The first is that Jesus disrupting our lives is evidence of his grace, even when we don't understand why. Jesus disrupting our lives is evidence of his grace, even when we don't understand why, or when our cries to him go seemingly unanswered. Jesus has flipped over the tables. He has brought weak, distracted worship to a screeching halt, and when they ask him on what basis he's doing these things, he gives them a cryptic answer, and they say, explain that to us, and he doesn't say a word. He doesn't explain it. And so what John is pointing out, again, by putting these two passages together, is that the same Jesus who sometimes hears your cries, like at the wedding feast, and he answers quickly and floods you with unexpected joy and the sense of his presence, it's like he's filling your table. Well, sometimes that very same, same Jesus is gonna turn the tables upside down in your life. And it's this grace that he does it with even when we don't understand what he's up to. Sometimes God shows up with fresh joy and answered prayer, and you should consider that a miracle. He's filling your table up. He's using those circumstances to point you to him. And then at other times, God starts flipping the tables over in your life, and you don't know why, and you don't know what he's up to, and it's really hard and challenging. And John's saying you should consider that a miracle too. His grace is invading. It's breaking up the things in your life that are breaking you. It's scattering the things in your life that are scattering you. And we know this because this is always what he's doing. He is carrying out to completion the good work that he's starting in you. He is transforming you from glory to glory, working out all things for your good. Most of us like the first Jesus. Oh boy. He's at the wedding. He's the compassionate miracle worker. He keeps the party going. It's this angry Jesus that I don't get and I don't like. It's not the gentle and lowly Jesus we've all come to know and love. But what this shows us is that God's love is actually so much deeper and profound. It's not superficial. It's a fierce love that's far more interested in satisfying you with the only thing that can, himself. And he's testing and purifying your faith and accomplishing this holistic redemption from the inside out. And we shouldn't want it any other way. Do you want a God who is apathetic towards evil? No. Do you want a God who is impotent to condemn and cleanse even the rebellion in your heart? No. Come and sift me. Malachi 3 says that he comes like a refiner's fire. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like refiner's fire 
He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. Why in the world we, we pray for Wendy Mason's platelets to go up just so that she can go in and get this awful medicine that is then going to make her body feel like crap? Why would we do that week after week? It's because we know that that medicine is eradicating something far more sinister, something that's deadly inside of her, and we want her to be restored. And that's the hope that these hard and awful things are working out for my good and and my salvation. You know, it's that first part of the verse in Romans 8 that is our hope that that's what God is up to. The first part of the verse says that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's why you can have the confidence that the things will all turn out for good. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And so what Jesus is saying is that the hope of Israel, the hope of the nations is not in those temple walls. It's in him in what he's about to do, his life, his death, his resurrection. The temple was where heaven and earth were joined together. Jesus is saying, that's me. The temple is where you went to have your sins atoned for and a priest would mediate for you and there was a sacrificial animal. Jesus is saying, that's me, that's me. You went to the temple so that your prayers could be heard and mediated before the Father. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the temple. I am the one who has come to make an atoning sacrifice for your sins. I am the priest who mediates it. All your prayers are heard by God through me. He's saying everything that you need for God in this life and the next are found in him. And that we can be confident that it's ours because he will be destroyed and raised up again in three days. And what John is saying is, Do you see it? Do you see all this grace, this invitation to real worship, the fullness of my grace and truth, the ability to behold his glory is ours because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Now, they didn't get it then. They didn't get it until after he was raised from the dead. But then we get this part at the end of John 2 where it says they believed the scriptures. When they saw the risen Jesus, they believed the scripture. And the words Jesus had spoken, they believed. And John is saying, I think to us this morning, would you consider that as well? As you consider all of who Jesus is, there's yet one thing that you have to do to receive his glory for yourself. And that's to believe, to put your trust in him. And so whether you are not a believer yet or you've been a believer for a while, is this the day that you would trust him again? that you would believe the words of Christ and see the glory of the Lord. Let's pray together that God would make us the temple in this community to the world around us as well. If you are serving uh, communion this morning or on the worship team, you can come forward and we'll go to the table. Father, we, um, we know that At any moment, you can bring revival. Revival to a community, personal revival, corporate revival. 
And that happens as we see again the glory of God. And we want to be people who expect it, anticipate it, prioritize our schedules around it. But we confess that we are weak. And so thank you, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who has accomplished this all for us. May he be the object of our worship. And may his love reign in our hearts this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.